You are Locked On Magic, your daily podcast on the Orlando Magic, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And you are indeed Locked On Magic. Today is June 1st, 2018. My name is Philip Rostenreich. I'm the expert and site editor over at orlandomagicdaily.com. You can, of course, follow me on Twitter at philiprr underscore omd. I don't know about you. I'm recording this at about 1230 in the morning. I am still coming down off that game one of the NBA Finals, the Golden State Warriors defeating the Cleveland Cavaliers and a really exciting game. If, if we can get four, five, six more of those, I'd be really, really happy. I don't know about you. Um, certainly, Cleveland proved themselves more game than I probably thought they would. They would. Uh, LeBron, just incredible, scoring 51 points. And of course, uh, an unfortunate gaffe at the end, uh, something that, that you hate seeing because you feel for the guy and, and, and you see all the jokes coming in. Uh, but in a big moment, a big mistake made. I'll recap that game in a little bit. Uh, I just want to remind you, if you want a little more in-depth on the NBA Finals, to check out Locked On Warriors, Locked On Cavs, and Locked On NBA. You can find them all on iTunes. Locked On Warriors and Locked On Cavs, just like Locked On Magic, if you a daily, daily podcast covering the team so you get them into the nice, gritty little details uh, in, in every single podcast. Definitely be sure to check that out. And Locked On NBA gives you the national perspective as well from the site, from the local experts like me uh, around the NBA. You can check out the Locked On Podcast Network, of course, on iTunes. Be sure to check those out. Today's episode, though, is going to be all about the Magic's coaching hire. Uh, we're still getting reintroduced to Steve Clifford, of course. He was an assistant coach with the Magic for five years under Stan Van Gundy. Spent a year with the Los Angeles Lakers and then five years with the Charlotte Hornets. And so I reached out to someone who would know Steve Clifford, the head coach, better than anyone else. And that would be Locked On Hornets host Walker Mail. Uh, I've been on his show a few times. I've had the Locked On Hornets crew on here. I've I've made it no secret. I like what the Charlotte Hornets were trying to do. Um, I liked their team a lot. I was extremely disappointed that they weren't able to take that next step because I think it's healthy to have teams that can build without super-duper stars. Kemba Walker's an all-star, don't get me wrong. But I always thought the Hornets did a good job. They they got good draft picks. They made some, some good decisions. They just could not get those last pieces in place. They could not get the free agents or the trades to go down for them and take that next step. And and as you'll see in this discussion, uh, I, 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 I cribbed a, a line from, from my good pal Chris Barnwall of CBS Sports that the Hornets really did a good job hitting singles with their draft picks when really they probably needed some doubles and triples to get to that next level. That's not on Steve Clifford, of course. That's on Rich Cho. So in this conversation coming up, we discuss everything there is to know about Steve Clifford and about what he brings to the table as an NBA head coach. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Walker Mail. Enjoy. And I'm joined now by Walker Mail, the host of Locked On Hornets, a guy who's very familiar with the Magic's new head coach. Walker, how, how are you doing today? You ready for the NBA Finals tonight? Yeah, I, I am. I'm doing well, and uh, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm so going to watch every game. I have a feeling it's going to be pretty lopsided, but still, I'll, I'll be there for every single game, That even if it's five in the Warriors or however, it may, however long it may go. I yeah. will certainly be there to watch it. <laughs> yeah, it certainly 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 feels that way. Um, it, it's also fun it talk. It's also fun talking to you again. Of course, I, I jumped on to talk a little bit about James Borrego's stint as the head coach of the Orlando Magic for for you guys over at Locked On Hornets since the Hornets hired him. Um, before we dive into Steve Clifford a little bit, a couple weeks out, what's what's the feeling in Charlotte about bringing Borrego in? 
Oh, uh, well, you know, the first things first is, you, of course, you have your press conference. And it, it's probably the easy thing to do is to win the press conference, right? It's probably the easy thing to win the honeymoon phase, but he did it. And, and it, what's interesting about Charlotte and the offseason that they've gone through is Mitch Kupchak didn't exactly do that. So Mitch Kupchak gets this GM job. He addresses the media after as soon, you know, probably a couple of days after he gets it. And you left that press conference not feeling all that comfortable about the hire man. And, and again, we, we all know about Mitch Kupchak's history with the Lakers. We know the kind of basketball mind that he is, but just did not win the press conference. It, was pre, it seemed like a guy that didn't understand everything that was going on here in Charlotte. He kept alluding to the fact that he was only there for a couple of games and, and seemed genuinely unprepared. And you didn't leave with a good feeling after the GM hire. That was not the case whatsoever with James Borrego, who comes in, answers every question Candidly, I thought he was very genuine, thought he was very thorough on whatever question that was thrown at him. It seemed like a guy that had a purpose, seemed like a guy that wanted to create an identity, and seemed like someone, of course, coming from Popovich's system that understood that that was something that was attractive about him, right? That he, he was going to take a lot of the stuff that he learned from Pop and was very appreciative, but also had some thoughts of his own and talked about some of the players and the kind of things that he wanted to do. You know, the, the one thing about Charlotte is we are so keen on developing Malik Monk because it means everything to this organization that just has not drafted well. And James Borrego mentioned Malik Monk constantly in that press conference. He linked himself to him, talked about his development is directly tied to him, about how it's a 12-month process. So when he was discussing everything in that press conference and discussing the development of all the players of this Hornets team, I think it got everybody excited going forward with Borrego. Could not have done a better job, honestly, as far as at least the introduction part to his new job here in Charlotte. Yeah, and it's interesting you, you, you mentioned the development part, I guess, uh, now kind of shifting over to the, to the Magic's hire of, of Steve Clifford. Sure. Um, it, the Magic came in saying Clifford's a great player development coach. He's obviously a longtime assistant. Uh, the Magic are familiar with him organizationally, at least, or the higher-ups are uh, from his time with Stan Van Gundy. But I think one of the big criticisms that Clifford faced was that the, the, the draft picks never really turned into much. I mean, Malik Monk, as a rookie, you know, maybe he didn't handle them correctly. Uh, you know, uh, you know I, I think whenever there's a lot of pressure to win, which I assume Charlotte was under this year as, as they didn't win and their coach was fired. Um, whenever there's a lot of pressure to win, you tend not to rely on young players who tend to make a lot of mistakes. But, um, you know, I look at that team, they, they never really – Draft, we're in position to draft many stars, um, but but Frank Kaminsky turned into a solid player. Cody Zeller is, is a really impactful player, probably more than I, even I thought he would be. Um, you know, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist became probably, when he's healthy, at least one of the best defenders in the league. Where do you fall on, uh, I mean, we'll get into the big macro question of, of, of overall what Steve Clifford's job was in his five years there, but where do you fall on Steve Clifford as a player development coach? Was that really something that was lacking in Charlotte that they needed to correct? And and is that is is that a strength of Clifford's, or is that something that was kind of a mixed bag there? I thought a lot of people gave him a hard time on that, and I thought it was undeserved for a lot of that. Look, I, I think Steve Clifford is a good head coach in this NBA. I think he is a good play of develop, player developer. He did not get a lot of respect in that regard here in Charlotte. There were a lot of fans that were upset about the fact that Malik Monk was not playing. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of I don't want to say anger, but there was a lot of frustration that Frank Kaminsky didn't turn into something more than he is right now. And people have a lot of problem with Frank with this team. People have a lot of problem with MKG and Cody Zeller. 
But you know, my response to that is, you know, there's a reason that Rich Cho isn't here anymore. Yeah. I mean, they did not draft well at all in, Char- in the Charlotte Hornets tenure. You know, the first pick is Bismack Biombo for the Bobcats, and it took them two times to hit on Kimba Walker, the only guy I think you could say was a definitive hit at where they drafted in Rich Cho's tenure. And again, it took them Bismack Biombo before you got <laughs> to Kimba Walker, which you guys know about down there, paying him 17 mil. So. Yep. I mean, it, Rich Cho is, is a guy that I think deserved a lot of blame in that regard, and it's a reason that, that he's no longer here. When you look at the development, Steve Clifford, I think, developed guys into these nice role players, and also it probably was the ceiling for a lot of these guys. I mean, I, I mean, MKG, the jury's out on him, right? I mean, he's very young still, but MKG is never going to develop a, a decent enough jump shot, especially in today's NBA. He's going to stay on the floor to guard the opponent's best wing offensive player, and that's what you put MKG on the floor for. Frank Kaminsky is never going to be a guy that's good defensively, but you're hoping that he can be consistent enough three-point shooter to leave him to stretch the floor. That's about what he's going to be. Cody Zeller, I thought, developed as a guy that can stretch the floor and run rim to rim, and I think you're starting to see – you started to see him come into his own – but Cody Zeller's constantly hurt now. So, I mean, he's just constant, constantly injury-laden. And I think you can credit Steve Clifford to a lot of that development. And, and this whole notion that he doesn't play rookies, that you want somebody that comes in and plays rookies that you have to throw them into the fire. Well, he played Frank Kaminsky quite a bit his rookie season. He also played Cody Zeller quite a bit his rookie season. And Kimba Walker, of course, comes in and plays quite a bit, even though it's a bad team. And I know I think it was one year before uh, Cody Zeller, yeah. before Clifford got there. But, of course, that was his, you know, a guy I think that developed quite a bit under Steve Clifford. Uh, and, and, again, I'll, I'll go to a quote Clifford said. I believe it was on the Zach Lowe podcast not too long ago, maybe a couple months ago. And it was that he talked to a – he wouldn't give a name, but he talked to an assistant coach, and he said to Clifford – that he had never seen anybody develop like Kimba Walker had in the past couple of years, that he is the most improved player in that regard. And I think you can credit a lot for what, again, Clifford was doing there. I mean, it's impressive to me. So he gets a lot of flack for that. He gets a lot of disrespect in that regard. I am not one to hold him accountable for the lack of player development because to me, it's, I think he's just reaching in these guys' ceilings that were already there. Again, Rich Cho, I, I put more of the blame on for guys not developing as these high is draft it, I mean, is, is it fair to say, uh, to say and I've, I've had it described to me this way by, by, some, by some other writers that have covered the Hornets, um, that, that Charlotte in their drafts hit a lot of singles, never really got the double or triple that they needed in the draft to, to, take, to take that well, next step. Is that a fair conversation? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's, no, that's fine. I mean, that's probably a good way to put it. I mean, look, you're, you're getting guys that aren't considered huge busts because, you know, MKG, the second overall pick, you know, he has not lived up to, to the value of a second overall pick, but it's a guy that can see some time on the floor. I mean, it, it's a guy that you could see as a starter. You know, Frank Kaminsky, I, you know, you, you draft him over some other players like Miles Turner and Devin Booker, which a lot of Hornets fans are still frustrated about and, and deservedly so. And it, it, I, I don't think you'd call him a bust. You know, Rich Cho, I never think, really drafted any busts. No, the Charlotte Hornets never drafted any guys that you just say, man, they need to be out of the league right now. But again, Kimball Walker is the only guy that has turned into an all-star. And you're talking about a Bobcat slash Hornets team that you saw draft second overall. You saw draft fourth overall. They've been in the lottery quite a few times, and none of these guys besides Kimba have even sniffed an all-star game. So, yeah, single probably a good way to put it, just guys that you put out there and, 
can be rotation players, but you know you need more than that in today's NBA. Yeah, and certainly you, you know you, you can hit you can hit a lot of singles, and eventually you might score a run, but you're you're probably not gonna you're probably in this NBA especially you're probably not gonna really compete at a high no. level well, unless it, you're hitting home it was runs. Small, right, sorry, it's like sorry, like small ball in the NBA is not equivalent to small ball in the MLB. You know, <laughs> exactly. You might score, we we need we need to hit some home runs here in the NBA, unlike just bunning and hoping to God that we score on a sacrifice squeeze. That's not exactly what's going to happen here in the NBA. You need to hit your draft picks as with a small market team, and just hasn't happened with Rich Joe. Yeah, for for sure. Um, when when Steve Clifford came in, uh, the, the Bobcats, I guess they were still trained. They were beginning to transition to the Hornets, but the Bobcats at the time um, were coming off two pretty poor seasons. I think it was, what, 28 total wins in, in two seasons, including that the seven-win lockout season. Uh, and the moment, I mean, and the first year that Steve Clifford got there, they become a 40-win team and make the playoffs. How big was, the, the I guess, the, the culture shift that Clifford brought on uh, from that first 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 year, like what, what what did he do to really help turn that team around so suddenly? Was it was it a matter of I mean he, he spoke yesterday at the press conference about how uh, Kemba Walker insisted that he go through every drill of summer league even though he wasn't playing in the games, even though Clifford kind of offered him just you just play in the scrimmages at night, don't don't worry about the drills in practice uh, and and the leadership that that he took on, and obviously players matter at the end of the day too. But how big was the culture shift that, that Clifford brought on even from that first year to bring about that turnaround? Well, the, the, the Charlotte Bobcats were coming off of one of the more questionable hires in the NBA yeah. after Mike Dunlap had, had that team. And, and, of course, Mike Dunlap comes in after that seven-win season, doesn't do that well at all. I mean, just, just a, a very questionable hire, to say the least, and he's gone instantly. Then they go to a guy like Steve Clifford, who had been heralded as one of the better defensive minds and one of the better assistant coaches in the NBA, of course, can understand Van Gundy. Of course, everybody knows that. But Steve Clifford comes in and establishes an identity. He understands it once, and I don't think he has any problem relaying that message to the players about exactly what he wants. The players know every day, this is exactly how Steve wants me to play. And I think that translates very well, especially to young players, where it's already a tough jump to go from college basketball to the NBA. Remember that Charlotte team, again, you're talking about Kimball Walker, you're talking about some young players, an established Al Jefferson, who was very good at that time, but you're dealing with young players that need a a kind of a a message that is simplified for them, and that eventually you start to get detailed as they start to get some more experience under their belt. But Steve did a good job. Uh, Steve, excuse me? And probably some continuity, too, just being in the same system over and over again, you begin to learn the nuances. Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, I I completely agree with that. And it's just a guy that that I think just did a good job with these young players, that they were able to understand what he wanted out there on the court, and they did it, and they bought into what Clifford was saying, and it turned out to be uh, a good season for a Bobcats team that desperately needed it. You know, he takes them to a, a playoff appearance, and yeah, they get swept, but you know who cares? Or this was a team that had just gone, you know, as the, literally the worst NBA team winning percentage-wise in, in all of the league's history. And Steve Clifford comes in and turns it around, and, and never has a season. You know, next season he goes 33 and 49, but then the next season you have to adapt, right? I mean, he, he doesn't even have the same kind of team as uh, uh, the team that made the playoffs the second time. 
it was a different kind of playing style, and they took the heat to seven games, and Dwayne Wade was just amazing in game six and seven, but you know, he took the team to playoffs in two different ways. He adapted in that regard, and I, again, I think he's a good coach, and I think he did a good job with establishing something with a brand-new team with a lot of young players, and I think, I think he can do the same with Orlando. We'll see. Um, not exactly the greatest situation, but I, I think, I, I'll tell you this, I think that situation, I think that talent that they, had around, that they have around him in Orlando right now is better than what he inherited in Charlotte for the most part. Yeah, and that, it'll be interesting to see how, how those pieces fit together. Um, those first three years, Charlotte was top 10 defensively. He noted at the All-Star break that fourth year, they were seventh in the league in defensive rating uh, before injuries kind of had them tailing off. What is it? What, what, what is characteristic about his defense? What makes them so successful? I mean, I kind of joke with people, he had a top 10 defense with Al Jefferson at center. That's, that's no small right. feat. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Like Al Jefferson is basically playing in cement, and he gets—he's he, had an old man game ever since he was drafted in the league. And he's had an old man. He's probably had an old man game you. since elementary school. Let's be honest. Yeah, he did. He did. He, he was—he was playing at the Y, and that's where he developed his game. Absolutely. Defensively, not exactly a guy that you—that you hang your hat on. But you're right. I mean, it was impressive. I think what they did, and again, I'll use the word simplify here, right? Like with Al Jefferson, it's not that Al Jefferson needed it to be simplified, but you needed his actions to be limited, right? I mean, you wanted Al Jefferson to kind of camp out in the paint, limited mobility. You don't want him to move around a whole lot because just simply he just can't. And then you would have the perimeter defenders go at it. Again, with, with that team, right? I think you had Gerald Henderson, who was a good defender on the perimeter. Um, I mean, Kimball Walker was a guy that – you know, was able to at least be active on the perimeter. Uh, MKG was on that team as well. He was a rookie that season still, or maybe that was his first year. And MKG, a guy, if nothing else, has proven to be a good defender. So you would just have a bunch of perimeter guys do very well out there on the three-point line and, and pack line area. And then Al Jefferson was just kind of chill down low, and if anything came up there, throw a hand up and see what you get. But, I mean, that's what kind of Steve Clifford implemented. And I think what you've known from him, and, and Philip, I know you uh, talked about this with James Borrego's philosophy, is that Steve Clifford, just like Borrego, cares about protecting the rim. They're similar in that regard. Clifford you know, liked Al Jefferson being down there to at least be a bigger body. You know, They went after Roy Hibbert, and the Roy Hibbert experiment didn't necessarily work here, but it's something that he did, he did praise, he did want as a, as a guy who can protect the rim. Uh, that's why they went out and got Dwight Howard. He was a big um, he was big in getting Dwight Howard here to Charlotte, and I don't necessarily know if that experiment worked wholeheartedly, but it was with the intent to protect the rim. So that is something that he believes in. Uh, it, it is a ever-changing NBA. It is now watching these guys spread the floor so much more so than we're used to, and I think Steve Clifford has shown the willingness to adapt to that. At least he's discussed it in interviews and podcasts that you've listened to him come on. Um, but defensively, it's somebody that cherishes protecting the rim and, of course, obviously putting a ton of effort in that area of basketball. And I think you can expect that again. I don't think that's ever going to leave him, but I do think you can expect him to adapt and maybe demand more of the centers, maybe try to get more mobility out of these guys, which he just hasn't, hasn't had a whole lot of mobility at the center position. You know, Cody Zeller probably has been the most mobile, and it's not like that guy is a, a defensive lockdown defender at the center position. So maybe with Bismack, I know Orlando is desperate to get some useful minutes out of him, especially with that contract. You know, maybe with Bismack, you're able to see what he can do defensively and make him a useful player again. 
yeah, it'll it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he likes the potential of Kem Birch and and obviously the length on the perimeter with Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon yeah. probably intrigue him too as far as as kind of copying a little bit of what what he had in Charlotte with some of those rangy uh, defenders. Right. It, it feels like it's just a much more switching league now, and you need centers um, that that can get out on the perimeter a little bit and hold their own at least or slow down the guys enough to to bring the help over. Um, Jeff Waltman uh, yesterday during his press conference. Uh, during the press conference introducing Clifford, said said something really interesting. I'd like I'd like your thoughts on this statement. He said, "Steve Clifford teams don't beat themselves. That you you have to beat a Steve Clifford coach team, or you had to beat those Charlotte teams. They weren't going to turn the ball over. They weren't going to give up a lot of offensive rebounds. Um, they were just kind of very solid discipline wise. Um, it, do you do you feel like that that's a true statement about Clifford's five years with with the Hornets?" I think that's a perfect way to describe his teams. They, they do not beat themselves. They, they're not – look, Steve Clifford would always talk about this, and, and I'm sure you guys will realize this quickly, by the way, that Steve Clifford is crazy candid, that he does – he leaves – he is completely truthful anytime after any post-game press conference. It's a guy that's going to let you know how they performed that day and, and how and, and why it happened out there on the floor. But Steve Clifford would constantly talk about – that they're not a crazy talented team. I mean, he would he would be straight up with us. He would let us know. He would let everyone know that the way that that those Charlotte teams are going to win, we're going to be to have low turnovers, to play very good defense, and that was the way that you were going to put some wins, uh, put some wins up. And I, I think when you talk about Steve Clifford's ability to have a team be completely disciplined and not beat themselves, you know, it it, it makes a lot of sense from small market teams that just haven't quite hit on talent yet. And if you're able to at least win some games in the meantime to, you know, to establish a winning culture, I think Steve Clifford is the perfect guy for that because it, it takes the mistake out of it takes the mistakes out of a basketball game for the most part. You know, they, they were among the league's best in, in um, not turning the ball over. Again, they, they constantly finished towards the top in defense besides the last couple of years where it just started to go astray. You know, Steve Clifford had always had some of the best defenses out there in the entire league. And it's not exactly a roster you would look at and say, well, man, that, that's a crazy athletic roster. You know, they, they've been begging for some athleticism here in Charlotte for quite a while. And you guys in Orlando, I mean, Orlando has some athleticism. So, um, I mean, it's I, I think Steve Clifford, his ability to limit the mistakes for a basketball team is a perfect way to describe the kind of style that he implements with any kind of franchise that he coaches. Why? Why did things go wrong in Charlotte? Was was was? I know there were a lot of injuries over the course of his five years. And you know, I I I think I, I think I had uh, I think I had your your producer Doug when he was hosting Locked On Hornets on my show right. a, a few years a year ago. Um, and I kind of saw the Hornets as kind of a, a a model for for the Magic, a team that didn't have any stars but was trying to take that next step forward um, to 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 be a playoff contender at the very least and, and get in the running for some free agents. Um, but it, it just never seemed like Charlotte could get over the hump. Uh, what what do you think was the cause of all that? Well, look, I, I think that expectations at the beginning of the year were pretty high. The Charlotte Hornets had not made the playoffs the previous season. It was a, a season removed, of course, from that seven-game series against the Miami Heat. Then that summer comes along. You can't keep all the free agents that the Charlotte Hornets have. You lose Courtney Lee, a good wing defender and a good three-point shooter you lose Jeremy Lin who had been a very good reclamation project in Charlotte after struggling in the meantime and you keep Nick Batum and you keep Marvin Williams and you know you, you keep those guys and then you try to build elsewhere and it was tough to bounce back I think from that but this season 
in particular, this past season that just happened, you get Dwight Howard in a trade that you send Miles Plumley and Marco Bellinelli to Atlanta. And I think Dwight Howard and myself included, I, I think there were some expectations for him to come here and help a defense and help a team, you know, take it to the next level and get back into the playoffs. And when you look at this off season, uh, I, th- I think Charlotte and perhaps Boston and, and Detroit, you know, those are the three teams you looked at in the Eastern Conference that you would have said improved in the offseason, that improved greatly. You know, nobody had Indiana doing what they were doing. Philadelphia, you didn't know about the injuries, but that they were going to be a three seed in the Eastern Conference. And so when you look at the team that really improved, it was probably Boston getting Kyrie, it was Detroit and getting a, an Avery Bradley, and it was Charlotte getting Dwight Howard and sticking with some of the guys they already had. And you look at that roster, you think it's a playoff roster. So the expectations were high. I just don't think the Dwight Howard experiment worked out. You know, Steve Clifford went on that Woj pod. He went on the Adrian Wojnarowski podcast after he was fired. And he discussed that centers in today's NBA game are so keen on developing their offensive game, trying to stretch the floor that way, but instead that they should be trying to develop their game defensively and being able to move laterally on the perimeter because now you're having to defend these unicorns that are just specimens, crazy specimens coming into the league. And some of these guys are just not only getting outdated offensively like we usually think, but defensively. They just can't step out and defend on the perimeter if they're able to do that. Then you have a real chance to be a star in this league. And I think, you know, that was kind of a a shot at Dwight Howard who was just unable to do so. And I don't think it, it just did not work out this season. On top of the injuries, on top of just some talent that never was able to work out because the, it wasn't drafted well, I think for the most part the expectation was just a little high at the preseason. And defensively, it, it, the game plan just was not able to um, thrive with, with Dwight Howard being at the center position. Yeah, that's, and that's interesting to note too. I mean, I, I, I think it's really been intriguing watching these playoffs, seeing how the center position has really, really changed. Um, you know, Hassan Whiteside essentially didn't play that last half of the series because he yeah. didn't stick with Joel Embiid and was a defense. I mean, maybe he had some other issues too, but he became a defensive liability. I mean, even Rudy Gobert, probably the defensive player of the year, got played off the court uh, in, at times in, that, in the Jazz series with the Rockets. Well, so. Right, and, and, a, and a guy that is, you know, decent on the perimeter, right? I mean, for him to be that big, decent. But, may, I mean, it's just – it's so crazy that they're spreading the floor this much, that it's all perimeter – that a guy like Rudy, who was fantastic, you know, they did find a weakness in that game where they're just constantly on the perimeter. And even even Gobert, who any team would love to have on, to have on their team, like any team would love to have him on the roster. Even he got some uh, got some flaws shown in that game in that series. Yeah, uh, definitely interesting. Well, I appreciate you giving us some insight on Steve Clifford on on what he could do as a, as a head coach and what he did with the with the Charlotte Hornets. Um, let, let my listeners know uh, what's coming up on Locked On Hornets and uh, where they can find you. Yeah, so Locked On, we're just uh, talking. It's a lot of draft talk, obviously. Yep. You know that Charlotte Hornets need <laughs> a lot of the Charlotte Hornets need to hit big time on some draft picks with a, with a draft history that has not been very good. So we've been discussing some of the players that may, might fit uh, with the Charlotte Hornets. We've been having a lot of fun, too, this offseason. We're going, you know, obviously three days a week, so trying to – Spice it up, trying to have some fun, maybe talking about the history of the Charlotte Hornets and some other stuff going on there. And you can find us uh, at Locked on Hornets uh, on Twitter and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Locked on Hornets. And if you are interested in anything going on here in the Queen City, you can catch those websites, catch those uh, tags on social media and give us a listen. 
Yeah, and definitely, definitely do that. Uh, Locked on Hornets is is a fantastic show. Uh, Walker, thanks, thanks again for joining me here, and uh, hopefully we'll be talking again soon uh, when when we're, both our teams are playing in the playoffs again. Yeah, I, I hope so, Philip. It's been a pleasure, man. Always have fun talking to you, and uh, thanks again for having me on. My thanks to Walker Mail for joining us on the show. Uh, sorry if the uh, audio is a little bit off. I had to record that through my computer. Didn't have my mic. I'm using my mic now to record this. So uh, I'll give you a moment to adjust. I'll, I'll use my smooth jazz NPR voice for a little while to let your ears adjust to the different audio levels. But again, thanks to Walker for talking to me for a little bit about Steve Clifford and about what he brings to the table with the Orlando Magic. Certainly very excited to have him in Orlando. Very curious about what's going to happen. And and obviously there is a lot to like, certainly a lot to detract, and we'll just see how the chips fall from there. But... Let's close the show then on a look back at game one of the NBA Finals. And, and I couldn't help myself. A, it was a fantastic game. One of the best Finals games from start to finish that I've watched. Uh, just just everything you could expect. LeBron James with a masterful performance. Uh, he's just unreal. Um, he's playing such incredible basketball. It's, it's, so, it's such a joy to watch him play. And it's still a joy to watch the Warriors play. Stephen Curry had a fantastic game. Durant did his thing. You got to see JaVale McGee in all his glory. But everyone's attention is going to go to the end of regulation with the with the Cavaliers trailing by one. George Hill was at the free throw line, split his free throws. Uh, and J.R. Smith grabbed the rebound and went back out to the three-point line as if the Cavaliers had the lead expecting to get fouled and time ticking away. And, uh, and the Cavaliers did not end up getting up a shot. And so they go to overtime and in overtime, the Warriors warrior. The Warriors just went Nova and beat Cleveland bad and made it a 1-0 series lead for Golden State. And I couldn't help but think back to some of the gaffes that, that have, frankly, marred the Magic's playoff history. Yes, missed free throws. Magic fans know all about missed free throws in the NBA Finals. Nick Anderson missing four free throws during Game 1 of the 1995 NBA Finals that... Uh, cost the Magic that game and, and really deflated the team. I think back to 2009, Game 4, Dwight Howard missed a pair of free throws with the Magic up by three. Just needed to make one to go up four and tie that series of two. Instead, he misses. Derek Fisher comes down to the other end of the court. Jameer Nelson lays off him just a bit too much, doesn't foul, doesn't really contest the shot, and Fisher buries a three to tie that game and send it to overtime. I, I agree with this set sentiment that in both those games, and all three of these games actually, the teams that failed or struggled or didn't didn't finish the game had a chance to still win it in overtime. So you can't put it all, you can't put everything all on those moments. But undoubtedly, those moments were very deflating. You could just sense the frustration from the Cavaliers and and the exasperation that J.R. Smith did not make that free did not make that right play, or George Hill did not make the free throw. And certainly, Smith's gaff seemed to overshadow the fact that George Hill split those free throws. You put on top of that the ref's decision to overturn a charge call, an original charge call for LeBron James that gave Golden State two free throws. And it was just a frustrating night for Cleveland. And you could really feel for them because when you watch that game play out, Cleveland, when you watch that game play out, Cleveland really had to play perfectly to beat Golden State. Golden State, I thought, was very sloppy. 
Um, not turnover sloppy, but just very loose with their offensive uh, game plan. I thought their defensive game plan wasn't particularly good either. They were switching every screen, and so you had a lot of LeBron going at Stephen Curry, which is I don't, which I don't think is what Golden State ultimately wants. Um, you had a lot of them giving up offensive rebounds. Tristan Thompson, Kevin Love did a great job on the glass, as did Larry Nance, who had, who had some big minutes, and J.R. Smith honestly in the first half had some big minutes too. But at the end of the day, Golden State could get away with all that because Curry went off. Durant got his shots. Klay Thompson came back from a knee injury, got his shots. They got big minutes from JaVale McGee in the third quarter. They got big minutes from Jordan Bell in the first first half. And Golden State could mess around a little bit and still come out on top with that win, with a close win at that. This is not a game Golden State should be satisfied with. They did not play great. They played fine. They played okay, especially down the stretch when it became a back-and-forth game and they were very engaged. But... Cleveland played a much better game. Cleveland had a great game plan. I thought LeBron controlled the pace extremely well. They attacked the glass selectively. They got back on defense and prevented those fast breaks for the most part. They had big lead that they would give up from time to time. You're not going to bottle up Golden State forever. But they did a really good job keeping Golden State in check for most of the night and, and withstanding those body blows that Golden State puts on you. This was a game that Cleveland had to win. If they were going to steal one, from the Golden State Warriors, this is the one they had to steal. And they didn't get it. Unfortunately, they didn't get it. And I think they're going to regret that. And especially the way that they didn't get it has me very worried about what their frame of mind is going to be heading into Game 2 on Sunday. Can Cleveland? Does Cleveland have the mental resolve to bounce back, remain confident, and look at this game and say, Golden State didn't beat us, we beat ourselves. We can beat this team still. Are they going to have that confidence? I know LeBron will. LeBron will definitely keep that team even and keep that team ready or keep himself even ready. But the question is, is J.R. Smith going to recover from this? I remember Nick Anderson was never the same free throw shooter after missing those free throws. These are big moments. These are big games. You can't do anything but look back at them with regret. Now, maybe because the Cavaliers have been been to the finals the last three years, this feels like old hat. I think with that 95 Magic team, it felt very, very new. It felt like this was our moment. We've got to do it now. And, and I'm not saying that Cleveland doesn't have that urgency. But I, I think Cleveland knows may, may, be, may be able to weather the storm a little bit better than maybe that young Magic team could. Then again, we won't know until the ball tips off on Sunday night, on Sunday at 8 o'clock. And they very well could be done. I don't think they are because LeBron is that damn good. Like I said, I, like I said yesterday, I'm giving the Cavaliers at least one game out of respect for LeBron. LeBron ain't getting swept. This game proved it too. He looked tired at the end of the game. He's going to need someone to step up. He's going to need Kevin Love to step up. He's going to need J.R. Smith to step up and make shots. Someone's got to take some of that burden from him. But what was it, 51, 8-8? Eight and eight? I, I can't remember seeing a finals performance quite like this. Not since Allen Iverson, probably. LeBron is not human. Let's 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 make that clear too. And he's gonna need to continue to be superhuman to keep Cleveland in this series. But I think this game proved that yes, Cleveland can stay in these games. The question is, can they get to the finish line? Can they get all the way to the end? And this was something I noticed in the in the Western Conference Finals. Um and, and it was true to some extent and, and became less true and then became true again. 
Cleveland's got to be perfect to beat Golden State. There's no the, the margin for error for Cleveland in these games is very very small. To be in this game, they needed LeBron to score 50 points and they needed to win the offensive glass what was it 15 to 1 and they needed to hit their three-pointers and so on and so forth. Golden State I did not think played a very good game. They 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 had their moments but Golden State looked ready to settle for one-on-one game. And that's not how they're going to win. But Cleveland had a good game plan. And I think Cleveland will make some adjustments. And, and I think they'll, they'll keep it close. But I do think Golden State ultimately wins game two by a healthy margin at the end of the day. A great game one, though. Uh, if we Again, if we get more games like that, it's going to be a very fun NBA final. So Golden State up 1-0. Sunday is game two. In Oakland at eight o'clock, that'll be on ABC in the in the U.S. and in Orlando, in Florida. I want to thank everyone again for listening to today's episode of Locked On Magic. Of course, find us on Twitter at Locked On Magic. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, all the fun places you download podcasts to your podcasting and listening device. You can subscribe to the podcast there. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, as I said, and you can of course check us out at LockedOnMagic.com. You can follow me, of course, on Twitter at Philip underscore OMD. And for the latest on the Orlando Magic including the latest draft profile on Colin Sexton. I know that's someone everyone wants to read about. Check out orlandomagicdaily.com. A quick note on the draft as well, since I'm going to skip the draft today. Um, I was listening to an interview with Jeff Weltman from Scott Inez of ESPN Radio. Uh, He said they have not brought in any players for the sixth pick yet, so it seems like the Magic are still doing their homework and still getting their ducks in a row before bringing those guys in for some interviews. So, Still some time. Still got three weeks until the draft. It'll come quick, but still some time to get that work done. I'm sure the Magic had someone out at the Pro Days out west, um, even though Waltman and Hammond were not there dealing with their new coach and hiring their new coach. Again, be sure to check out Locked On Hornets. They do a great job covering the Charlotte Hornets there. Check out Locked On Warriors and Locked On Cavaliers. And, of course, follow the website on Twitter at OmagicDaily. That's going to do it for me. I want to thank you all again for listening. I'll see you all again on Monday for another episode of Locked On Magic. Have a great weekend. For Orlando Magic Daily and Locked On Magic, this has been Philip Rossenreich. I'll see you all again next time for another episode of Locked On Magic. You are Locked On Magic, your daily Orlando Magic podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.